The scripture reading today is taken from the book of Acts, chapter 7, verses 54 through chapter 8, verse 3. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at Stephen. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is the word of the Lord. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, uh, we're glad for our time of worship this morning that's uh, reminded us steadily of the victory of Christ. We pray now that as we, as we think about this moment in the life of the church, really, and also in the life of Stephen, that you'd help us to know how we might relate to it, that we would understand how we might participate in a and a faith like his, and an understanding of Jesus as perhaps he had. So uh, guide us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's it's always great to be at Liberty Fairmount. Enjoy being here every time I get that opportunity. Uh, As you well know, Jeff was a great friend of mine and is a great friend of mine. Scott is a great friend of mine, so it's really a real honor to to be back with you guys uh, today. Now, this text, wow. You know, did you sort of read through this and you're listening to this and you're trying to think through, okay, how, what will encouragement look like in this text? So, you know, during the break, I went and got some happy tea because it's back there to lift my spirits, to help me. No, seriously, it's a challenging text, isn't it? Because this is a moment in the life of the church where there's tremendous persecution, Now, most of us, when we read this, we have a sense of disconnect with this almost immediately, right? You you read this text and you think, well, that was then, this is now. Or you know of stories in the world where there are, in fact, parts of the church that suffer very direct kinds of persecution. Tremendous suffering specifically because they name the name of Jesus as their Lord, as their Savior. But most of us in the room today, or this morning rather... We can't relate to that kind of persecution. That's not our life. So how do we connect with this story? And what I want to suggest is just something like this that I'll say at the outset, and hopefully it will become a little more clear as we go along, 
is that Stephen stoning, this moment of his persecution, his response of faith, is actually something that's on the extreme continuum of Christian discipleship. It's, it's on the outer end. It's on the extremity. It's in the hardest spot possibly imaginable. But it is something that you and I must relate to because we need to have the kind of faith, really, that Stephen has. And hopefully we'll understand a little bit as we go along. Our experiences of Christ in the world are always situated inside of a tension, right? Think about it. You profess faith in Jesus Christ. You read the scriptures. You know something about the resurrection of Jesus, right? You read about it. We've, we've talked about it even this morning in our worship. We've been thinking about his triumph. But when you walk out of the door in just a little bit, you're going to encounter Philadelphia. And you're going to walk through the streets of Philadelphia, and you're going to find places where it doesn't look like triumph is happening. In fact, it looks like just the opposite. You're going to see those kinds of things in, 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 in our experience of living life in our neighborhoods here in this city. You're going to um, think about your own lives as persons. And you're going to think, you know, I suffer in some way. I, maybe, you, maybe it's just a simple illness. Or maybe it's the fact that in relationships you find it hard to get along with the people that are closest to you. Maybe you look at your own personal story and you think, you know, the things that we were confessing our sins earlier and we were acknowledging that there are things about our past that we can't change. But you find that the past just keeps creeping into your present. It keeps sort of tugging at you and you find yourself once again back in that downward spiral. Faith in Jesus Christ, in the triumph of Jesus, takes shape in the middle of a broken world. A few weeks ago, Stacy and I were down in Georgia for a wedding of some friends of ours. And it happened to be friends of ours from our days in Charlottesville. And many of these friends are in their 50s and 60s. Okay, they're, they're on that upper end of the spectrum, I understand. I belong into that group a little bit. <clears throat> so here we are, sitting around the pool at this hotel, <clears throat> waiting for this moment of tremendous celebration of the son of one of our dear friends, his wedding. And we looked at some very good friends of ours. We said, you know, what are you hearing from people, their struggles, as you move into your 50s, as you move into your 60s? And basically, our dear friend, who's an elder in a church down in Charlottesville, Virginia, he simply said this. He said, there's really a whole lot of not yet about God's kingdom. When you think about your lives, there's a whole lot of not yet about God's kingdom. Now, let's think about that in the context of what we learn from Stephen's life. Three things. Triumph, defeat, and the likeness of Christ. Now, first, triumph. The earliest Christians followed Jesus. Why? Think about it. Most of the early Christians were um, Jewish converts. They were persons who were uh, sometimes on the edges of Judaism, but, but in general, they were, they were Jewish persons who believed that God had made certain kinds of promises about a world of justice that would happen, that would come. And they began to believe that those promises were centered, were coming true in one man in Jesus Christ. Why? Because they encountered him as resurrected from the dead. Resurrected from the dead. 
It was the kind of event, it was the kind of data point that required that those who were near Jesus, those who encountered the resurrected Jesus, they absolutely had to start rethinking life. They couldn't, uh, they couldn't conceive of it as they had previously conceived of it. They had to begin with Jesus and then move from there. Stephen is one of those persons. Now, we didn't read the whole story of Stephen's life. But if we had, the, the, and just prior to this, Stephen preaches a very very lengthy sermon in which he walks through the history of Israel. Really, he takes chunks of Old Testament stories and he shows his listeners or he speaks to his listeners in a way that helps them connect the dots from those stories of what was happening in Israel to the fulfillment of Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing. He's helping them sort of draw these dots over toward Jesus himself. He's showing how he himself is now reimagining all of the promises of God in light of Jesus' death and his resurrection. And what he's essentially saying is, look, no Jewish person can think about their life with God without passing through Jesus. You have to get to Jesus. And it's not just for Jews, by the way. It's for the whole world. That if you want to understand how your story, how your experience, your dreams, your hopes, your ideals, whatever, the the best things of your life, how they might in fact come true, you have to connect the dots to Jesus. For the Jews that Stephen is speaking to, he's urging them not to sort of leave life in the moment of the Old Testament but move forward with what God is doing in Christ. All of his promises are finding their ending point in Jesus. And the leaders are enraged. And so they begin to move against his life. Now, in this moment, the most remarkable thing happens. God opens up the heavens, in a sense, right? Which is very symbolic, right? Think about it. Earth, heaven, our world, God's world. And so Stephen here is in this moment of the earthly life, of his earthly life. His accusers have come towards him. They're, you know, they're, they're, um, they're, they're moving against his life. It's a moment of tremendous injustice. But what God does for Stephen in that particular moment is he parts the heavens and gives him a vision of the victory of Christ so that in that moment, when, if, he, if he were just to be looking at the earth, if he were only looking at what's happening in his life at the moment, in this sort of horizontal plane of earthly life, he would begin to despair. Of course he would, because it looks like defeat. But what God lets him see is that his kingdom is certain. That all of these things that he's been preaching about, all of these things he's been talking about, all of these stories about Jesus that he's begun to, answer, sort of, to anchor his life in, that they're real. It's valid that, Stephen, you're not crazy. The kingdom of God must feel incredibly distant in this moment. If you just simply take the earthly facts account and account, justice seems like an impossibility. But what God shows Stephen is that justice is coming. And so he beholds the glory of God, and Luke tells us he sees Jesus. He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he describes him as he reports out to Israel now, to the leaders of Israel, he describes him as the son of man. And so once again, every single person that had any familiarity with the Bible at all that was listening to what Stephen was describing would know immediately that he's taken a title out of Daniel. 
the Son of Man, who was a figure, who was a person that was anticipated, who would bring ultimate and lasting, enduring justice and wholeness to earthly life. And so Stephen says, I see the Son of Man. And in that moment, they become further enraged. Jesus is standing at the right hand of the Father. And there's a link we're meant to understand between God's world and our world. And it's situated in Jesus himself. And so Stephen and his hearers should understand from this visionary moment that God's world is certain, that justice is coming. It's a moment marked by injustice, but Stephen is given a tremendous vision of justice, of triumph. Now, second, defeat. Visions like this happen in places where they seem least true, right? I mean, think about it. Why would you need a vision of the triumph of Jesus unless it seemed like it wasn't real? Think about stories that you know from the Bible, perhaps Isaiah, I think of immediately, right? There's a moment in Isaiah's life of despair, of uncertainty, because the king of Israel has died. And he enters into a space of worship, and we're told in Isaiah chapter 6 that he beholds not a king of Israel, but the Lord himself, high, lifted up, holy, right? A vision in a moment of, of tremendous insecurity, of tremendous earthly uncertainty. Isaiah is given a vision of God's world, of who the Lord is for Israel, of who he is as king for Israel. Or you think maybe of the Apostle John in the New Testament period, right? On the island of Patmos, he's imprisoned in an island imprisonment. He's, he's, he's removed from the church's life. In that moment, what would he have felt like? You know, Jesus, is this right? It, was it right to hold on to you? Did I really experience your resurrection? In that moment, what does the Lord give John for the sake of the church? He gives him a vision of revelation. Why? So that we might understand the certainty of God's future, of justice that's coming. The vision here for Stephen, it reminds him simply that he's just not insane. He's not crazy for following Jesus. And even in a moment like this one in which his life is in danger, even when his personal defeat seems so imminent, Stephen's reminded of the victory of Christ in the midst of his own defeat. And he's emboldened with courage to keep talking, to keep witnessing, to keep moving forward because he sees Jesus raised from the dead, the assurance of his future coming. Now, courage doesn't mean that life turns out as Stephen might have simply wanted it from a human vantage point, does it? Think about it. Most of us, when we think about a life of faith and we think about wanting courage or we think about wanting things to turn out well, we think, what, that in the space of my life, in the space of my lifetime, things will turn out well. In the space of my lifetime, my life will be relatively easy. That's not at all what Stephen's given. The crowds here rush toward him in greater anger and they begin to stone him and take his life. My kids talk about first world problems, right? I mean, that's our world, right? We live in this moment when we don't suffer like many, many people in the rest of our world. We don't. Our suffering is of a first world nature. Um, And so, you know, we say that sort of jokingly in our household as a way of saying, what? Stop whining. 
right? You know, get over yourself. Your problems aren't nearly as severe as the rest of the world's problems. Be realistic about your problems. Now, let me back off of that for just a moment and say this. Every place that suffering happens is related to one another. Suffering happens on a continuum. And suffering, as you think about the biblical story, we understand that it comes from where? It comes from the fact that a world is sort of spinning out of control away from God. As humanity retreats from God, suffering enters our world. And so my suffering, as small as it may be, is related to suffering on the other extremity, the suffering of Stephen. So the question for us may be something like this. How will you and I live lives of faith, right? How will you live with your sense of the brokenness of life? The life of faith always anticipates a different future from the present we're currently living with. But it doesn't do that in a naive way. When I was a graduate student in sociology, There was a colleague of mine, whom a dear colleague, I really respected her a great deal and had a great friendship with her. But she always she was so positive. You know, she was a glass the glass is half full kind of person. I mean, just always. And me, well, I'm a glass is half empty kind of person. And so you can imagine the kinds of conversations we might get into, right? But she was always sort of coming back. Well, it'll work out. She would recount some horrific thing happening inside of her family. And she'd say, but it'll work out. You know, my kids would say something like, it's all good. You say things like that, right? It's all good. It's all good. Look, here's what we need to think about. A person of faith in Jesus Christ doesn't naively say it'll work out. A person of faith in Christ isn't sort of like a happy American who's drinking happy tea and saying it's all good. But a person of faith is someone who is connected with the triumph of Jesus and has a sense of the reality of the triumph of Jesus. And so when you say something like it's all good or it will work out, you don't necessarily mean by that that it will work out in the space between your birth your death. But you begin to recognize that your life is framed by a very different reality. It's framed by the work of Jesus Christ. It's framed by the kingdom of Christ. You see fragments of that kingdom now. You experience it in a community like this when you, you know, you come to worship and it's enjoyable in some sense and, and your spirits are lifted and you're reminded of something wonderful. You see it when you gather with your home group and you, you, you realize what it's like to be loved by people who are getting to know you, the real you. And yet they still love you, the real you. You taste something of God's future in those moments. But in between all of those moments, you see a whole lot of brokenness and you recognize that your life is brought into something else something greater than the span of your own lifetime. The life of faith happens in a world in which we experience more earthly defeat than victory. That's hard to believe when you're young. But as you cross that magical dividing line of middle age, you recognize that your options are fewer and fewer and fewer 
and fewer. And so dreams that you thought might come true one day, all of a sudden the horizon is just shrinking in front of you. Stephen's life was a life like that. He's facing his judging accusers. They have rocks in their hands. And yet, in this moment of his martyrdom, he very remarkably is able to keep believing because he understands how his life is connected to something much larger. For Stephen, defeat was about to happen. For the early church, there would be more experiences like that of Stephen. Look at what Luke writes. He says, And Saul approved of their killing him. That day a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria, and devout men buried Stephen. They lamented over him. But Saul was ravaging the church by entering house after house, dragging off both men and women. He committed them to prison. The pattern of life in the early church was that faith really was a life and death matter. Will you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead and that somehow God's promises were coming true in him alone? Or would you choose the easier way out and just holding on to the Jewish past? Would you choose the easier way out and just holding on to the values of Roman culture? Would you just embrace the world at hand Or would you really believe that God had made good on his promise to bring his world into our world? The earthly moment that you and I live in is a world of brokenness. It is a world that is infused with a different idea of God's victory, of his hope. A certainty of life anchored in the God who acts in our world. And it changes the way we live life when you understand that. But defeat is so very real. Now quickly, finally... The likeness of Jesus. One of the most surprising things about Stephen's life, I think, is that he continues to witness. And as he does so, you see his participation in the likeness of Christ. Verse 459. While they were stoning Stephen, while they're hurling rocks, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he knelt down and he cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he died. Think about this for a moment. There's a sense in which if you've watched movies, you like that triumphant dying moment. Right? It's easy to sort of have a romanticized notion of what Stephen is going through. But if you sort of enter the moment of what he's going through and you recognize the severity of what he's going through, this is a moment when Stephen has to choose. Will I hold on to Jesus or will I retreat? And Stephen holds on to Jesus in a tremendously transforming way. He actually becomes like Jesus. His own words are very similar to the words of Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Stephen has taken on the image of Christ. No one, none of us should ever crave experiences like that of Stephen. You'd be a really twisted person if you wanted that. Nobody wants that. But we should really crave a faith 
that follows the pathway of Stephen. To be persons who are able to sort of enter into spaces of suffering, that tension between a world that ought to be and the world that is not, and respond with similar love and compassion and missional witness to Christ. So the question I have for myself, really, is how do you get a faith like that? Where does that come from? And the answer, I think, is you really need something of a vision like that of Stephen. You need the certainty of the resurrection of Jesus. You need a sense of which your life begins in his resurrection, and you become a person who, like Stephen, is ordering everything about your life through its reality versus every other thing that's going on in your life. That you hold on tightly to the resurrection. The author of Hebrew puts it beautifully in chapter 12. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, that is, persons of faith that have gone before us, people that have held on to Christ, people that are even around us now, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Doing what? Verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith, the pioneer of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary or lose heart. See, the only way to live like Stephen is to embrace the truthfulness of that which Stephen embraced. The reality that he saw before him, Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, Jesus the pioneer of his faith, Jesus the one that took up his cross first and moved more ultimately for you in his own death to bring us into the family of God into the promised new creation, who now stands at the right hand of God, triumphant and promising that your life is larger than the space between your birth and your death. You see, what would it look like if you and I took seriously the charge of framing our lives through this narrative of who Jesus is? What would that look like? You know, Jim was up here just a few moments ago encouraging you to come out to a lunch to participate in a church plant in Collingswood, Virginia. I mean, Virginia. Collingswood, New Jersey. New Jersey is certainly not Virginia. I've been in both. Now, see, why would, why would you leave a community that you love? You know, why is Jim leaving Texas? People love him down there. I know that because I know people in his church. Why would he do that? He's embraced by Christ. Why would you participate in a church plant? Because you've been embraced by Christ. You recognize the truthfulness of the resurrection, and so you're willing to put yourself in spaces of discomfort for the sake of the mission of his church that other people would continue to hear the news of this hope, of this gospel. That's why you do that. You see, why would you... Enter your everyday relationships with people. Those people that hurt you. I mean, have you ever hurt in a relationship? Has anybody ever done something that just 
hurt your feelings, or even worse, it, 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 it damaged you in some sense. Every one of us can speak to that reality in our own friendships. Maybe it's in your family close to you. Maybe it's in persons around you, a roommate, a colleague in the workplace. You know what it's like to be sinned against. And guess what? You know what it's like to sin against others. You see, what would it take for you to be in those relational spaces in your life and when you're sinned against, instead of retaliating, saying something like, Father, forgive them and love. See, the only way that you and I can do that is as we understand what it's like to be loved by a God who got near humanity. And in that moment, when human beings are rushing toward his life, he says, Father, forgive them. When you understand the forgiveness of Jesus, you enter mission. The Apostle Paul, he's mentioned here in this particular text, at City Church, we're reading and thinking about the letter to First Timothy. It's a remarkable little letter written to a church loaded with problems. Written, rather, to Timothy, who's working in a church that's loaded with problems. And as Paul begins to write to Timothy about his own story, as he's thinking about the Ephesian church, Paul says at the end of chapter 1, he remembers that he himself was a blasphemer that he was lawless, that he was in this moment with Stephen, persecutor of the church. And he remembers that this moment of persecution led to other moments of persecution. Paul knows that about his story, but he says this, but I was shown mercy. But I was shown mercy so that others would look on my life the greatest of sinner, the chief sinner in some sense, persecuting the church, standing in opposition to the very things of God boldly. I was shown mercy so that others would have hope. This is a true statement, he says. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Do you understand that? You see, because if you do, you're beginning to have a sense of the same kind of vision that animated Stephen's life. He understood what it meant to be a person redeemed by the risen Jesus Christ. And so he engaged in mission, reflecting the likeness of God. The author of Hebrews simply encourages us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Don't wait for some vision to come to you but rather get in a place in your Christian life where you're looking to Jesus, trying to understand more and more of who he is for you, and you will find your life growing in worship to God, growing in love for one another, and engaging his mission in the world. Let's pray together. Our Father, we admit that we struggle to live as Stephen lived. Our first world problems get us down. We pray that today as we continue in our worship, that you'd remind us of the kind of God that you are for us, Christ, that we would see that we're the ones that have been mercy. 
so that we might in turn become persons who bear the likeness of Jesus into our world and our everyday lives. Meet us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.